But let me invite you this morning to join me in God's Word and first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, as we pick up in Genesis chapter 38 today. As we continue looking at stories that are found in God's Word that are part of a greater story, an overarching story of God redeeming a people to be His people and to enjoy uh, the blessings of being His people. One thing that I think I've mentioned before that I love about uh, stories of the Bible is that they don't overlook human weaknesses. They don't gloss over human mistakes and shortcomings and, and failures. In other words, the, the Bible is not like ancient mythology in attributing superhuman qualities to human agents who uh, have little or no flaws. Well, the characters of the Bible are people just like you and like me with limited knowledge and finite days and who are all sinners. In fact, as we look at God's Word this morning, we will be reminded of the seriousness of sin, the depth of human sin, and the reality that sin is deplorable in the eyes of God. But even so... The one and only God, the God of the Bible, the God that we serve, the God that we have been worshiping today is a God who is compassionate and gracious and merciful, a God who invites all to repent and to receive forgiveness of sins through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Scripture tells us in 1 John 1, verse 8, that if we claim to have no sin then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It goes on the very next verse, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so as we prepare to look at God's Word this morning, and this specific story that's in Genesis chapter 38, one temptation will be for us to simply point the finger at the public sins of others, But I hope in the process that we won't fail to see the depth of our own sin and the corresponding depth of God's mercy. So as you find your place in Genesis chapter 38, let me invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 38, I'll be reading portions of this text and summarizing others. Genesis chapter 38, beginning in verse 1, and there the Bible reads, At that time... Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. I invite you to bow with me in prayer. Father, we do invite you, we ask you to lead us by your Spirit and understanding your Word and applying its truths to our lives today as your people, that we might be forever transformed by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, you may be seated. And so here in the opening verses of this story, Genesis chapter 38, we are introduced to all the main characters of 
this story. We're told at that time, meaning shortly after Joseph in the preceding passage was sold by his own, his own brothers uh, to a caravan of merchants passing through as a slave. And so shortly after that, we're told that Judah, one of Jacob's sons who was involved in that process, uh, met a Canaanite man, befriended a Canaanite man named Hirah. And then he encountered a Canaanite woman. Now, the language of verses 2 and 3 is very terse. It's very rapid. He, he, he saw this Canaanite woman. He married her. He lies with her. And they began bearing children together. Now, why is that significant? Why is that important? And the reason that this is important is because this goes directly against previous uh, warnings and instructions found in God's word. Abraham, in chapter 24 of Genesis, verse 3, had made his servant swear to him that he would not find his son Isaac, a wife, among the Canaanites. Chapter 28, verse 1, Jacob warned his son, uh, or no, excuse me, Isaac warned his son Jacob against finding a wife among the Canaanites. A precaution against uh, infiltrating and being too influenced by these pagan peoples. And because of previous sins of Judah's older brothers, Reuben's sin in chapter 35, and Simeon and Levi's sins in chapter 34, Judah is now in uh, a prominent place uh, among the sons of Jacob. Yet knowing of these warnings, he directly opposes them. He settles down among the Canaanites, and he marries a Canaanite woman, but even so, it appears as if his life begins to flourish. He's blessed with three sons, Ur and Onan and Shelah, uh, but uh, as it turns out, these sons don't appear to be much of a blessing. For Judah finds his son Ur, his firstborn, a wife, Tamar, but we're told in verse 7 that that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord put him to death. And then his, his wife, Tamar, who's still childless, is given to Ur's younger brother, Onan, the secondborn, for Onan to carry on his brother's name through Tamar. Now, this is a strange practice. This seems very odd to us, very foreign to us, not something that we can really identify with on any level, but this is a practice that was common in that day known as leveret marriage from the Latin word for brother-in-law. And it served two important purposes. And one was to carry on the name of the deceased because he had no children. And the second purpose was to provide for the widow's well-being since she had no husband and now had no, no children. And so we're told through this text, this story that Tamar was given to Onan, yet Onan, knowing that any children that they produced would not bear his name, in fact, they would actually be first in line for the inheritance as sons of Ur before Onan was, and so as a result, he fails to consummate the union, and the text tells us in verse 10 that this was, this was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord puts Onan to death as well. Now, this strange story, this saga continues. And Judah, the father-in-law of Tamar, tells Tamar that she can go and live with her, her father as a widow. And when Shelah, his youngest son, grows up, he will be given to her as her husband. We're told 
in the text, in verse 11, that Judah's intentions were not so good that he never intended to give Tamar to his youngest son, Shelah. Tamar being one whom was in the condition that the leveret marriage was intended to protect is now forced to live as a widow in her father's household, bound by the law not to marry anyone else unless Judah releases her. But the story continues and Judah's wife dies, we're told. Judah grieves the loss of his, his wife. And after he has grieved the loss of his wife, he is on his way to shear his sheep. And word gets to Tamar that her father-in-law, Judah, is traveling by on the road. And Tamar, knowing that Judah has no intentions at this point of fulfilling his obligation to her as his daughter-in-law to provide for her a husband, she poses and veils her face as a prostitute along the way, and Judah encounters her, and in his vulnerability, offers her a goat. And we're told in the text, in verse 18, that Judah gives her his seal and his cord and his staff as a pledge until he sends the goat. Now, this was like giving away his identity. This was like giving his driver's license and social security number. These were items that could only be identified, could only be connected with Judah. And so Judah unknowingly lays with her and the result is that Tamar becomes pregnant. Now we pick up the story in verse 24. Genesis chapter 38 verses 24 and following. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. She was being brought out. She sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Verse 27, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. What a story. What in the world can we learn from this story? What can we take away from this story? Why is this story here? We are shocked by a story like this being in God's Word, a story like this being in The Bible, this is right there on par with the events of Genesis chapter 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis chapter 34, Dina and the Shechemites. We don't expect to read this kind of thing in God's word, but I think there are several truths, several key and central themes of God's word that are reinforced right here in this story that we can take away as God's people today. And the first of those truths is that the pursuit of gratification without responsibility, reveals the wickedness of humanity. The pursuit of gratification without responsibility reveals the wickedness of humanity. Two men in this chapter, especially, Onan, with his failure to carry out his duty as the husband of Tamar, and Judah, with his desire to quickly settle down with a Canaanite woman, and then his 
practice of immorally uh, engaging in an act with Tamar. Two of these characters, these two men especially, are portrayed as living for themselves at the expense of others. Pursuing their own desires when it's convenient with little or no regard to the well-being of, of others. They are living for themselves. In church, the reality is that most of the time, sexual sin, immorality, is the pursuit of gratification without responsibility. The pursuit of gratification without responsibility. And we could easily sit back and look on these deplorable actions that are painted here through these characters and this story of God's Word. But if we do so and all the while ignore our own immoral thoughts and our own immoral actions, then there's no less than hypocrisy. And we live in a day in which cohabitation is the norm and extramarital affairs are common and human trafficking often leads to sex slavery and in a day when multi-billions of dollars every single year are spent on the porn industry by those within the church and outside of the church and we would do well brothers and sisters to heed the warnings of scripture and flee immorality flee immorality run from immorality the new testament gives us all sorts of warnings on this very subject 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. And next week, as the story continues in chapter 39, we're given a picture, a glimpse of what that looks like as Joseph's actions clearly contrast with Judah's actions in this chapter providing an example for us to follow. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But among you, among you believers, Paul writes, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. In other words, don't succumb to immorality. And don't simply stand and try to fight it for yourself or for your children or for anyone else. Run from it. Flee from it. It is dangerous and it dishonors the one who made us. And it dishonors the very God who gave his life for our sins. Run from sexual immorality. The pursuit of gratification without responsibility reveals the wickedness of humanity. And we also see here in God's word in Genesis chapter 38 that God's just character guarantees punishment for sin. God's just character guarantees punishment for sin. Sin is inconsistent with who God is. He is just. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is holy, meaning he's set apart. There's no one like him. He is sinless and he cannot tolerate sin. And he will only put up with sin for so long. He is a righteous judge who must judge sin. Genesis chapter 38 verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. We're not given any more details about his actions than those. But the description here is very similar to the description of the inhabitants of the earth in Noah's day. 
that brought God's judgment through the flood. And then in verse 10, what Onan did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Really, this whole chapter and the story here serves as a warning to God's people to run from sin, knowing that God will not tolerate sin forever. In fact, the rest of the book of Genesis from chapter 39 onward, traces Joseph's life in Egypt. And soon all of this family, this broken family, this flawed family whom God had chosen would be in Egypt. As if God was saying enough is enough. I will only put up with this so long. I need to protect and to preserve this family from, from pagan influence. And then verses 24 through 26 account for the consequences of Judah's actions personal condemnation and public humiliation and children through the very one he was trying to get rid of. Friends, sin often has serious consequences here on this earth. Unpleasant consequences, but far more serious, far more important than that is that sin is serious before God. Sin is deplorable before God. The one who made us. And neither you nor I nor anyone else on this earth sets the standard of what is right and what is wrong. God alone sets the standard. So as believers who want to exercise faith in the one and only God, let's accept God's standard. Let's accept God's standard knowing that we have fallen grossly short of that standard. And that we will continue to fall short of that standard as long as we are on this earth. But even so, let's acknowledge that he sets the standard because he is God. He is Lord over all. And the beautiful thing about God's word and the message of the Bible is that God takes the punishment for our sin. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus takes the punishment for your sins and for my sins till on that cross As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. The reality is, friends, that that God would be just in condemning and destroying every single sinner like Ur and like Onan and like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, but the good news for us is that he doesn't do that. He looks on us with grace and he looks on us with mercy and with unconditional love. God's just character guarantees punishment for sin, yet God's gracious character guarantees his patience with his people. God's gracious character guarantees his patience with his people. He is both just and gracious at the very same time. Always, always acting in justice and always acting with grace. And right here in Genesis chapter 38, we get a picture of this man Judah at his, his worst. Described in very negative light, in a negative way, as one who quickly settles down among pagans. As one who fails to live up to his obligation to care for his own family. As, as one who condemns the immoral right after engaging in Immoral acts himself, but the good news is that this is a turning point in his own life. Verse 26, with his acknowledgement of his own sin, his recognition of his own sin, this serves as a turning point in his life as 
as Judah's life is transformed by the grace of God. Though Judah has sunk deep in sin, God is not done with him. In fact, Judah becomes the very one through whom the royal tribe develops. So brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are. Perhaps you have sunk deep, deep in sin. Perhaps you have sunk deep in immorality, but know that even so, there is hope for you. That we serve a God whose gracious character guarantees His patience with His people. A God who is self-described as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who welcomes and invites and beckons His people to confess their sins before Him because He is faithful and He is just and He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Folks, God's gracious character guarantees His patience with His people. And finally, we see here that God's faithful character guarantees the promise of a seed. God's faithful character guarantees the promise of a seed. These stories that we've been reading are not just loose, disconnected stories about interesting people. No, these are stories that are held together by a greater story, God's story. Remember in Genesis chapter 12 that he called Abraham and he told Abraham to set out in the direction that he would show him and that he would bless all peoples of the earth through him and promises later affirmed to To Jacob in Genesis chapter 28 where God tells Jacob that through his offspring all peoples, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, God is using this broken and flawed and sinful family to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. He is working through them and through their mistakes to fulfill his promises to them and not only them but to the people of the world. And I want you to see this. So turn with me to the right to the book of Ruth. Several books to the right, still in the first, probably third of your Bible. Joshua judges Ruth, first and second Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. But Ruth chapter 4, the ending of Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. This then is the family line of Perez. Should ring a bell. Perez, firstborn son of Judah and Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. After reading the events of Genesis chapter 38, it seems unlikely, it seems almost preposterous that Judah and Tamar would even be mentioned in the same sentence as the great king of Israel. But they are. The great king David, the one whom Scripture describes as a man after God's own heart. Judah and Tamar and their son Perez are in the lineage of King David. But It gets even better. So turn again far to the right in your Bibles to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 records the genealogy, the lineage of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and following reads this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of 
Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Folks, this is the family that God chose to use to give birth to the long-awaited offspring, the long-awaited seed of Abraham who would bless the nations of the world. And that offspring is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world. Notice the characters God employs in His redemptive program. Friends, notice the characters, the people that God employs in His redemptive program. Four women that are mentioned right here from the Old Testament and Jesus' genealogy from Matthew chapter 1. All four of them believed to have been Gentiles, non-Jews. Three of them, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, known for their immorality. And the fourth, Ruth, a Moabitess. One who, whose descendants came from an immoral relationship between Lot and his own daughter. Seems outrageous that Judah and Tamar would be mentioned with Jesus, yet this is what God does. Restoring what is broken and transforming lives by His grace, using what is flawed and what is short and the failures of people to bring about His greater purposes for our good. Church, God is a redeeming God. He is a gracious God, a restoring God who transforms people by His grace. So let me ask you, friends, this morning, have you received the grace that God offers? The grace that leads to forgiveness of sins and eternal life and a restored relationship to your Heavenly Father. Receive the grace God offers through His redemptive program. Friends, what a story in God's Word that is part of a greater story, that is part of God's story of redemption that He has written to impact your story and to impact my story. A story that reminds us that that sin runs deep, but God's grace is more. For the wages of sin is death. The deserved earnings of sin Rebellion against God is death, but but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Friends, we are seeing from God's word this morning that despite the wickedness of humanity, God is faithful, just, and gracious. Despite the wickedness, despite the evil, despite the failures, despite the sin of humanity, all of humanity, God is faithful, just, and gracious. What an incredible truth to impact you and to impact me and to impact whosoever will come to Jesus in faith. Judah, Tamar, and Jesus. Judah and Tamar. Surprising characters to be in the family of God. But likewise, we could say Chris and David, James, April, Dave, Lori, and everyone gathered here in this 
room. Surprising characters to be called children of God. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous. How wonderful. It's my Savior's love for me. As I wanted to sing that this morning, but after our music lesson earlier, I felt inadequate. But what a Savior, what a love, what a God that we serve. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your love for us, a love that is deeper, still deeper than our sin. Father, I pray that you would remind us of our rebellion, that you would remind us of the wickedness and the sin, the depravity in our own hearts and lives so that we might recognize the depth of your love for us and be overwhelmed by your grace and thereby motivated to walk with you and live for you as your people. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to worship you week after week. Father, I pray that you would lead us now as we respond to the truths of your word as we offer our lives to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.